Listen to me, you islands. Hear me, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and will lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, so back in the New Testament, starting chapter 2, verse 4. One Peter, chapter two, verse four through to verse ten. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who, puts, who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word to us. Well, we are going to be continuing in the book of Isaiah. As I mentioned last week, and uh, probably no surprise to you at all, uh, Easter is a time, or the season around Easter, is a time when Christians traditionally have explored uh, what the Bible teaches about the events that happened in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, exploring the person and the work of the one we know as Jesus Christ. And we have been looking at, we started last week, looking at uh, the section of Isaiah, starting around verse four, uh, chapter 40, going through to about chapter 55, that falls into a section and contains what is known as the servant songs. Now, these songs, uh, the New Testament makes it clear that as the Lord Jesus himself came to explore his purpose and mission, what it is that he came to do, the servant songs informed his own self-understanding at a profound level. When Jesus dug into the scriptures to find out what it is that he should be doing, this is where he went. And so it is of great importance and privilege that we can do this likewise. Now, as we dive in, We've also got to recognise that the scriptures, they're not just about what happened then. We believe that God's word is living and active and it applies and it answers questions that we ourselves are asking in the day uh, that we live in. And I'd like to suggest that this morning we live within a society that is looking for salvation. Now, they don't understand it like that. They don't go out and saying, I want to be saved but we have a society that is craving salvation. They are looking for freedom from oppression, whether that's economic oppression, whether that's gender oppression, whether that's racial oppression, whether that's environmental oppression. We have a society that is looking for salvation. They are calling out for a saviour. They're They're preoccupied. There is a fear. There is an anxiety associated with this feeling of oppression for those who see themselves on the wrong end of these things. The ones who are looking, they feel often shame, outrage. We see this in the ideologies of our day. We see this uh, coming through and being pursued through our schools and our universities. We see it in our political movements. We read about it in our media. These are the battles that are being fought within our culture. We have a society that is craving salvation. Sometimes it looks for it in peaceful means. 
In the last couple of weeks in Christchurch, we've seen someone who sought racial salvation with horrific means. We don't always look for the right things. We don't always look in the right places. But we are a society that is in search of salvation. And one thing, regardless of who you think and what you think you need to be saved from, one thing all these salvations agree with is the problem is out there. The problem is if we fixed up them, if you're looking for environmental salvation, the problem is all those people who are digging up and burning fossil fuels, all those people who are using plastic straws and didn't come with their key cups to church this morning, it is you that we need salvation from. The problem is out there. Pick your battle. If the other side got fixed up, everything would be okay. Now, the servant and our passage from Isaiah 49 speaks to this longing about salvation. And it gives us, I think, much more profound answers than what our society does. The Bible, as you will guess, has lots to say uh, about the topic of salvation. I've got five points. Cute. They all start with S. Okay. Uh, Here we go. Let's dive in. The servant. Now, we met this guy last week. Okay. He was just introduced as my servant. Okay. And last week in Isaiah chapter 42, we saw he is a king. He came to bring justice. The word uh, in the Hebrew Bible is mishpat, not just uh, retributive justice to set the evildoer straight, but to bring a perfect world where righteousness reigned. The positive side of justice, not just the negative. He came to bring worldwide justice through a phenomenal exercise of power. But we saw this contradiction that was there. Because this mighty king was compassionate. He was described as one who would not break a bruised reed, a reed that had been snapped off, that was hanging on by a few threads. He was so gentle that even that he would not break. The smouldering wick he would not snuff out. He was characterised by compassion, gentleness and humility. And here in Isaiah 49, the passage I read just a little bit earlier, the servant reappears and we get a different angle on him. He was the king in Isaiah 42. Here, he is the prophet. He says, listen to me, you islands. Hear me, you distant different nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now, I don't know if you recognize this, but this is the language of the call of a prophet. If you went into Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you'd find Jeremiah would describe his own call in exactly the same way. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks in Galatians 1.15 of being set aside from the womb. He is a prophet who has been set aside to speak the word of the Lord. We see that in the next verse. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. 
In the shadow of his hand, he, healed, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow, arrow and concealed me in his quiver. We see the Lord has made his prophet a weapon. Someone who brings God's word. We see this in Hosea. Hosea speaks God's word at a different point to God's people. And he says, I will cut you to pieces with my prophet, this image of this sharp sword. I killed you with the words of my mouth. The sword of the spirit is a very common image for the word of God. And the servant is one who is equipped to bring it. It is an offensive weapon, but one here that is yet to be fully disclosed. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me, tucked away. He made me into a polished arrow, again, a weapon for attack and concealed me. This servant, this prophet is not yet fully revealed. Goes on. He is given a name. It's there in verse Three, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, last week, I tried to convince you that the servant was not the nation of Israel. And here we seem to have something that tells you quite clearly that the servant is Israel. Now, I want to remind you, A, I'm not completely stupid. B, I knew Isaiah 49 was coming. And C, Israel was a personal name of an individual before it was a nation. Israel was the other name for Jacob. Okay, Jacob was given the name Israel by God. And here, God is speaking to an individual who he identifies as Israel. Like I brought you into the image of, you know, the captain of the team, represents the team, speaks for the team, enacts the team's purposes. Here we have the one person who represents God's purposes in Israel. Let me show you why it can't be the nation. If you've got your Bibles there, flick back to chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. Listen to how God speaks through Isaiah to the nation of Israel. Listen to you, descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. What's Isaiah getting at? You call yourself Israel, but you're definitely not acting like Israel. You're not living like Israel. God's purposes for his people are not being lived out through you. Look in chapter 49, verse 5. Look at the purpose for the servant. His purpose, he formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back and to gather Israel to himself. The servant achieves God's purposes to bring God's rebellious people back. The servant can't be the nation. The servant is that individual, but all God's purposes for Israel are wrapped up in it. 
And in case you weren't with us last week, what are those purposes? Well, they go back right to the beginning where God promises that the curse of Genesis 3 that came with human sin would be reversed. Where God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through his descendants, blessing would come to the whole nation. That God would reverse the effect of sin on the entirety of God's creation through the descendants of Abraham. And in so Exodus 19, the nation of Israel is established as God's priests, a chosen nation. But now through their unfaithfulness, Israel, the nation, is going off into exile. But God is saying, I am not giving up on my purposes for Israel. I am not giving up for my purposes for the world. I am going to see them realized through my servant, this one Israel. And this one is confident. He seems a bit bit down in verse 4. He says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. But look at the second half of this verse. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. This servant, this prophet who brings God's purposes... He's doing it tough, but he's trusting in God to deliver him. Reminds us of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? John 6, Jesus gives some hard teaching. Verse 66, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. At the end of Jesus's life, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14 records that everyone, Every single person who was with him deserted him and fled. Peter, one of his closest friends, the one that he'd raised up three times said, I don't know him. You can see Jesus' experience echoed in these words, can't you? I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Just a quick aside. It's worth recognising that by human standards, Jesus did not have a successful ministry. If you look at the end of his life, the church that he had built, where are they? Where are those that stand up? And even after the resurrection, there's just a few hundred. This is the Son of Man. This is God incarnate. This is the Son of God Doing ministry. So, for those of us maybe who find our Bible study is a little bit hard or youth is a little bit tricky at the moment or whatever, helpful to have this perspective. But recognize that, like the servant, like the Lord Jesus, our reward is with the Lord. What is due to us is in His hands. He is the ultimate appraiser. And here, The servant in his human limitations. Jesus Christ was fully man. He does not grasp the intention of God. He gets the scope. The Lord brings him up and refocuses him. 
He ups the ante. Let's read verses 4 and 5. The Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. It is too small a thing to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The servant had a first mission to bring Israel back to God. In Isaiah, initially, we're talking about coming back out of exile where they were in Babylon, in slavery because of their rejection of God, their disobedience, their sin. Israel was shamed, judged, crushed. And the servant was going to bring them back. And so what God then does is he gives him more. He says, it's too small to just bring Israel back. I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles, a light for the nations. Now, this should be ringing all sorts of alarm bells for us. Because if you are pro-Israel at this point, who are the nations? Well, the nations include Assyria, Babylon, Persia. The ones who've oppressed them, the ones who've taken... There's something else happening here. There is a bigger picture that is happening here. And we must always see that God's purposes for Israel are cast within his purposes for the nations. It was never just about Israel. Israel was there as descendants of Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. They were blessed so that they might be a blessing. And that is happening here. The servant is going to bring Israel back. But he's going to bring the nations in as well. He is a light for the Gentiles. And believing Israel saw this. Do you remember Simeon? The old guy in the temple when Jesus comes in and he's presented uh, at the temple on the eighth day. Uh, Simeon in Luke chapter 2 is recorded that the Lord has shown him the Messiah. Who he describes as a light of revelation For the Gentiles, for the non-Jews. This faithful believing Jew has been waiting. And in this baby is the light of revelation for the Gentiles. But the Gentiles aren't in exile. Babylon's not in slavery. Babylon's enslaving. Why do they need to be saved? It's because there's a much bigger picture going on here. We so often, we look at going back to our, our opening illustration and the different injustices that our society looks for salvation from. And they may be very real, can I say. I don't want to belittle those. They may be very real and very uh, at the front of our, our thinking. But Israel's big problem was not their geographical location. Israel's big problem was not their political situation. The nations and Israel together needed salvation. They needed to sort out their relationship. They needed the sin of Genesis 3 dealt with so that they might come back to God. Both rebellious Israel and the ignorant, dark 
nations. Ephesians 2 verse 12 describes the ones who are outside as without hope and without God. It's a stark image, isn't it? And the Bible teaches that if you are without hope, without God, there is no future other than judgment. You need saving. All the horizontal things that we see, for Israel, the fact that they're in Babylon, that's a horizontal thing, which is a symptom of the vertical. And God is saying, I'll sort out the little stuff, but it's the big thing that the servant is going to do, the big thing that the servant is going to bring Israel and the nations, the Gentiles, back in. If we just see delivery from exile, from Babylon, as the big thing, we miss the point. It's purely a band-aid. It's a band-aid. Let's move on. The salvation. What is it that God does? The servant comes in. The servant is going to be a representative of God's faithfulness. He says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. Verse 8, to restore the land, to reassign its desolate inheritances. I'm going to bring them back. That's what God is saying. I'm going to bring Israel back. And he uses the language, if you're familiar with the Old Testament concept of jubilee, where debts are forgiven, where inheritances are restored. This is the language that he's talking about, this return from exile. And you'd be excused for going, oh, that's great. God's going to sort it out. But there's something more happening. Simeon, seeing Jesus, he was not only looking for a light of revelation for the Gentile, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Big word, what's it mean? The comforting of Israel. If you've got uh, your Bibles there, flick back to Isaiah chapter 40, which is the start of this section. The first couple of verses. If you know Handel's Messiah, you could probably sing along as I read these out. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesies comfort. Comfort my people. Simeon, back in the temple in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, in the promised land, this faithful Jew is still waiting for this to happen. The restoration of the nation he saw was just the beginning of the blessing that God would bring, the comfort that he would have. It's like the... The return from exile is a micro-salvation. Excuse the word, I've made this up. If it's worth any money, I want to get that. But it's a micro-salvation. Okay, it's a little salvation. And here, the language of the micro-salvation is used to give us a glimpse of the macro-salvation. The little salvation and the big salvation. Okay, coming back from Babylon, that's micro-salvation, no matter how big you think of that as. And if you were there at the time, it would be huge to have your nation restored to you. But God is saying there is so much more coming. 
Look at the language in chapter 49 and look at how it goes up. It becomes more and more exalted. Say to the captives in verse 9, come out, those in darkness be free. They will feed beside the roads. It's an image of a flock of sheep. Okay, and there's so much abundance that you don't, the shepherd doesn't have to leave the road to feed the flock. They will find pasture on every barren hill. It's abundance. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them. The Lord himself will be their shepherd. The language goes up. It goes up to another level. I will turn all my mountains into roads. My highways will be raised up. It's going to be easy for you to come back home. The Lord will do everything it is necessary to pave the way for you to return. Can you see how this is more than just a nation coming out of exile and restored to Canaan? The language here is exalted. Eventually, verse 13, shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains. Okay, this is no ordinary thing. Creation itself is singing in response to God's salvation, not just for Israel, but for the nations as well. The language of the micro salvation, the Babylon exile return is then used to frame the macro salvation we see this in the new testament see um, it's one of these tricky sort of things that when you come across if you ever study the original language of the new testament greek okay the the word that we translate save so uh, i save is the word sozo okay Uh, I'm not going to make you say it, sozo. But you could also translate it at the same time as save, as heal. It has this double meaning. And so Jesus will often say to people, your faith has sozoed you. Uh, Your faith has saved you. Or your faith has healed you. And what I think he's doing is using a deliberately ambiguous term to show us that this micro salvation, this delivery from leprosy, this delivery from bleeding disorders, this delivery from blindness is a micro salvation, which mirrors the macro salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This salvation is not just physically returning to a nation. It is a slavery, it is a liberation from slavery, from sin, from death, from judgment, from despair and oppression on cosmic levels. On cosmic levels, but it is often described, especially in the Old Testament, in those more micro levels. We are saved from these things, but not just saved from, we are saved for. We are saved for blessing. You notice here, the Father, the Lord, walks along with his flock. He who has compassion on them will guide them. The Lord will be their shepherd. They have a relationship with him. Verse 13, the Lord comforts his people. God just doesn't set us free and set us loose. He sets us free and invites us in. 
The servant brings us home. How? Well, the later servant songs are going to get into more detail. But we have a hint here. Look at verse 7. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. He says to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. This servant, this one who is the light to the Gentiles, this one who will bring Israel back is the one who is despised and abhorred. How is that? This shame. This one, the servant of the Lord, who was mocked and jeered, who was denied, this one, despised and abhorred. Isaiah doesn't go into the details at this point, but he will come back next week, the week after, as we explore this. But here, you have to ask yourself, who deserves shame? Who deserves to be despised? Surely it's rebellious Israel that claim the name of the Lord, but do not live in obedience to his law. Who abuse his grace and shame his name. Surely it is the nations who oppress his people. Who want nothing to do him. Who turn away from a knowledge of God to worship idols. Surely it is them who deserve the shame and the abhorrence. Surely it is them that deserve to be turned away, cast out. But it's not. It's the servant. It's the servant, the faithful one. The one who gave himself to be a covenant. A sign of God's faithfulness. The shame that should be ours was taken by him. The abhorrence that we deserved fell upon him. He stood in our place. Not just taking our rejection, but taking our sin, taking the just penalty. And we will see that as Isaiah unfolds the role of the servant more. He, the servant, the Lord Jesus himself, takes what we deserve. Takes what we deserve he gets shame. What do we get? We get honour. He gets abhorrence. We get welcome. He gets turned out. We have no king but Caesar. We reign through him with Christ. Do you see the wonderful way this servant will bring this salvation. Not just Israel from Babylon, but us out of sin and death. And the great thing is, is the Lord delivers him too. Look at the second half of verse 7. Kings will see you and stand up. 
The only people who sat in the throne room was the king himself. The princes that surround him, they see you and they bow down. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the one that Philippians tells us who was exalted to the highest place and given the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the servant, the one who was despised and abhorred, the one who took our shame, who took our guilt, who took our punishment, and then freely offers, through faith by grace, forgiveness, acceptance, glory, adoption, that we might come home in Christ The valleys have been raised up. In Christ, the mountains have been brought down. The road has been paved so that we might come home. Where does that leave us? Last point. (coughs) Quickly. God's purposes for his creation remain. Genesis 12 still stands and until Christ comes back, the promise to bring blessing to the nations is continuing to be unfolded. The servant has done it. Christ achieved it. So what then do we do? Because if we have come to him and put our faith in him, if we trust in his name, if his death and resurrection is our salvation, and I pray it is, and if you don't know that, I would love to talk to you about that. What then for us? Because as he is Israel, as we come to him, we become the agents of God's salvation. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, the language of Israel. If you look back into Exodus 19, you'll see these two are mirrors of each other. You are a chosen priesthood, a a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's made us in Christ, his people, agents of salvation. And it's both the micro and the macro. So as you think about your life, as you think about how you live each day for Christ, think about micro and macro. Like Jesus we can show glimpses of the kingdom. When you see acts of compassion, acts of justice, acts that set things right, set things straight. As Christians, we shouldn't back away from the world and say, oh, I don't want anything to do with them. We should be agents of salvation, micro-salvation, mercy, justice, compassion. But macro salvation, we have the words of eternal life. We know what it is to come out of darkness into life. We know what it is to have our shame taken. So we need to live and we need to speak those words. The servant was a prophet. 
He spoke the very words of God. We have the very words of God, the promises. And through them, and through faith in him, we can bring blessing. So as we go, as we speak, and as we live, recognize that the servant brought salvation. And through him, and in his name, and because of his work, so may we. Let's pray. Father, what an awesome picture that you inspired for Isaiah to paint. What incredible words that the Spirit inspired to be written of the servant, the Lord Jesus, who would come hundreds and hundreds of years after this to bring a deliverance out of sin and death and shame and guilt and to bring life and peace and righteousness. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have opened eyes and softened hearts that we might come home. And Father, I do pray for brothers and sisters here who may not yet know, who may not yet have responded. Lord, we pray that you would stir them, that they might do that. That they would not leave here today without having conversations with those who can point them to you. That you would take them to your word, that they might see the blessing that awaits them in Christ. And we pray in his most precious name. Amen.